What is vitalism? Is paganism more vital than Christianity? Does the Lord Jesus fulfill the highest yearnings of the classical world? Well, hello, and welcome to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and our very special guest on the show this time, and I'm delighted to have her join us, is Susanna Black-Roberts, a senior editor of Plough, who's written for many publications, including First Things, Fair Ford, Front Porch Republic, and Mere Orthodoxy. And she's with me today to talk about a fascinating new article that she's just published in Mere Orthodoxy called The Birth of Comedy, which dinged my chime and interested me greatly when I read it the other day. And in it, she deals with vitalism, the Bronze Age, the Dionysian, Christianity, and all sorts of other things, including lots and lots of Homer. Lots and lots and lots of Homer. <laughs> now, Susanna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, it's a joy. Uh, it's a joy to be able to talk about this. this is very concerning and very strange in some ways. Now, your article is based on another article by John Errett called The Impossible Bronze Age Mindset. Now, what is vitalism and how is it connected with a desire to return to some kind of pre-Christian past, particularly to the values of Mycenaean Greece? Um, vitalism is a, a term that's been used to describe a uh, essentially a, a post post-christian attempt to return to a pre-christian world um in order to reinvigorate essentially it's a little bit of a self-help urge i think like people tend to be drawn to this if they feel that they're that both the post-christian kind of disenchanted world and christianity itself are don't do justice to their their own drives and their own desires of for greatness and for and for effectiveness in the world and it it's basically the the contemporary versions that we have, which are extremely online now and extremely kind of goofy a lot of the time, basically a lot of Twitter and ons posting about this stuff. But, you know, it it's it's jokey, but it's also not it's not exactly jokey. It's sort of like jokey in the sense that, like, there's not going to be a kind of vitalist political movement happening anytime soon. And so what one can do if one is drawn to this stuff is kind of create an avant-garde semi-jokey uh cultural and uh, you know artistic almost movement which is i think primarily what the main figure in these spaces this guy called bronze age pervert who's a romanian ex yaley sort of doctoral ex-doctoral student who did his um actually did his uh dissertation on uh calicles in plato's gorgeous which he's he's extremely funny he's um you know, essentially philosophically Milton's Satan, I would say, in a lot of ways, except that, you know, he rejects that whole framework. So he, not really. But he's, uh, yeah, he he's essentially getting at the Nietzschean critique of Christianity and fully taking it on and saying, yes, Nietzsche was entirely right. And therefore, we need to ditch Christianity and go with um, grasping after you know, obviously, we now associate Nietzsche with the Norse gods, you know, through Nazism and and that's that sort of thing. But Nietzsche himself was a classicist. He was a classical. He was a philologist, and his sort of primary drive was to recover. He was almost like doing Alistair McIntyre, but before Alistair <laughs> McIntyre, which is a weird way to think of it. But it, it was that it was a a recovery project of what it was that Homer meant by. Um, arete meant by you know virtue or excellence, and sort of looking into this question of the the meaning of the of good, and the way that Christianity had, in his view, corrupted the idea of good to mean something moral as opposed to something beautiful. So that's that's kind of the short 
not particularly short answer, but yeah, there's a lot of this going around. There's a lot of vitalism in the air. Um, and <laughs> so does New Zealand. I'm <laughs> grateful to say not yet anyway, or not that I'm aware of. This has an appeal presumably to some American right-wing conservatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's been very much kind of like mainstream publications have kind of drawn some of this into their orbit and kind of given it a little bit of a, well, we might not totally be on board with this, but on the other hand, it is sort of interesting and certainly the youths are into it. And so we should probably give it some airtime. So um, a Claremont review of books, I think, or maybe the American mind, one of the Claremont publications actually had Bronze Age pervert, who's the, again, the major figure in these spaces, write for them. Other people in these spaces have written for other sort of you know, prominent conservative Although not less so for explicitly Christian organizations or, or or outlets, but in in some cases for Christian organizations and outlets as well. Yeah, it's very, it's the new hotness. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it's it. Yep. <laughs> You say that, but it's the old hotness, because as soon as I picked this article up and read it, I thought, where have I heard this all before? Yeah. And I pulled my copy of Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy off my bookshelf, yeah. and I thought, it's all here. And if, that, yeah. of course, was tied in with the whole celebration of Wagner and this thing called the, the Dionysian or the Dionysian. Now, who yeah. was Dionysus? Because this is what Nietzsche was all about. It was recovering the irrational, instinctive yeah. and communal experience yeah. of Greek tragedy, and Wagner had done this, and it was all wonderful. Well, we know where it all ended in Germany, yeah, tragically. Um, and this is yeah. this is my concern. So, who was who was Dionysus, and what is a Dionysian view of life, and why on earth did it appeal to Nietzsche, and why does it appeal to these people? So, the Nietzsche's sort of primary, or one of his primary kind of category contrasts is the Dionysian versus the Apollonian, um, which is sort of the very broadly the emotional and passionate and kind of erotic versus the rational and orderly um parts of human nature and in my and he was sort of again this is very broad and kind of so broad as to be slightly wrong but he was in favor of dionysus sort of he was mainly though i mean he thought of himself as being in favor of achilles and it's really Achilles and that kind of aspect of sort of Greek thought that the contemporary Dionysiacs or some the contemporary man manids, as you might call them, um, have been throwing themselves into. It's it's not so much a they're not trying to do kind of Greek ritual, you know, of any kind. From what I can tell, they're trying to figure out how to. It's, it's very much a question of how, how are you supposed to be a man? This is a question of masculinity and masculine energy and thumos and what you're supposed to do with your thumos. And, you know, it's, I kind of pull back from associating it too closely with the, Dionys the Dionysiads because the Dionysiads are very much a female, um, or at least in part, a female set of rituals. And there's just not much room for women in this contemporary reappropriation of that stuff. Um, it's very much like guys being dudes um, on the plains of Troy. <laughs> um, and, and that's what's going to rescue you from your kind of boring evangelical Sunday school upbringing, which made you feel very squashed as a young man. Mm, okay. Now, what does Eretz piece, in your view, miss? I think you write that it misses... 
things about classical paganism and it misses things about Christianity. Now, what does it miss about classical paganism and what does it miss about Christianity in your view? In my view, I, I might, John is a really good friend and I think he's a wonderful writer and this was a very good piece. Um, and he's written recently. It's a fabulous you know, piece. Yeah, fabulous it's, piece. it's wonderful. Um, so this is just me being, It's more, It's more. my piece is more of a yes and, although it's a yes and, like his original piece was I think like 2,500 words and mine is 13,000. <laughs> which is really insane. And the only reason that I was able to publish this is because Jake Medor, who's the editor of New Orthodoxy, like when I ask him to publish things like this at this point, I think I've just, you know, he's just like, okay, whatever. Um, so it's <laughs> <laughs> like my husband and Matthew Lee Anderson have kind of beaten him down in terms of like allowing the publication of insanely long pieces. And I'm just like sliding in there on their coattails. Although I think my piece is longer than anything that Alistair's ever written on mere orthodoxy anyway. Anyway, so John's piece, I, I read it. I thought it was very good. I thought that it had a little bit of the, it's kind of like what, this is not fair to him. And I don't think he meant to do this, but it is kind of like what you would write if you were in fact a Nietzschean and you were trying to make Nietzscheanism seem very attractive, although unavailable to Christian men. It's kind of like, well, we can look back on these things and we can recognize that they're great and we can recognize, you know, that there was a time when the opposite of good was not, you know, evil but was bad, meaning ugly and weak. We can we can recognize that this was a, a glorious thing, but we can't return there because we are past the milestone of the cross and now we have to like look at goodness in a totally different way, but that kind of, that's a little bit of a shame. And I, you know, the thing that I'd been, I kind of am an obsessive, dilettantish reader of various things. Um, and the thing that you, and I'm also like an obsessive recent, like fan of Hades Town, which is this wonderful musical that I included a bunch of lyrics from in, in the piece. And the thing that like you, you miss if you're like, full-on kind of pro-BAP, you know, reading reading the stuff and feeling that he's really putting his finger on the problem that you're facing as a sort of like, maybe you're raised evangelical and you don't know what to do with your themos and you and you think that there's no, there, you know, you haven't been given anywhere to put it exactly. And also in your view, in your, in your understanding of your own faith, what your faith consists in is being very good and then eventually going to heaven when you die, where you are good still. If that's what your your view of Christianity is, and then your view of paganism is this kind of like extremely simplified almost, I would say, version of, of what it is to live as a pagan and to be a man uh, under paganism, under Greek paganism, then it it starts to seem like, yeah, Christianity is kind of a bad deal. Like it's a bad deal because it it doesn't it just leaves something unanswered. And the the problem with all of this is that paganism itself left something massively unanswered. And you know the the vision that BAP has of you know what it was like to subjectively be a pagan warrior, say in the Trojan during the Trojan War or afterwards, is extremely I would say disenchanted, actually. And it's very much like he he thinks that they weren't worried about their souls and they didn't have a problem with death because all they wanted was their Aristea and all they wanted was to to have this glorious moment and that was fine. That was good. 
but that's not actually the case. Like I had just been reading the Odyssey and like you get to book nine of the Odyssey and the, you know, Odysseus is, meets Achilles in Hades and Achilles is not okay with being in Hades. And he is not happy with the outcome of his Aristea. He is not, he's, there's something very wrong with the world. And it's not necessarily something morally wrong that he did. It's just, there's something very wrong with the world. And the thing that's wrong with the world is death because death wins in the pagan worldview. And so, you know, you could, you could read BAP all day and, and never come across the idea that, you know, these Greeks had any problem with this but the greeks had a huge problem with this yes, they yes. didn't like it at all <laughs> no i was going i was going to ask you in fact what is the view of the soul that we find yeah. in in homer and what's the view of death that we find in in homer so homer is a bit of a transitional figure so the but he really is kind of preserving a view of the soul and of death that really do seem to be pre-homeric so you know homer was writing around 800 years after the events of of the odyssey assuming that Homer was a single person, which I actually think he was, um, this kind of gets into a, a lot of the philological stuff that was going on in Nietzsche's time, actually. But at least the final version of the epics were gathered together around 800 years after the events of the Trojan War. And the view, but the view of the soul was kind of similar. And 300 years after, or 200 years after Homer, that had changed quite a bit. But the original view it seems, was that the soul is like, it's something very lightweight. It's not really you. It's your it's your spirit. It's like, it's sort of a ghost. And when you die, the, the you who you care about dies. And then your soul, the word is psyche, and it, it's the same word for butterfly. It goes down to Hades. And it is not happy. It's primarily not happy because it remembers it remembers being alive and it is no longer alive and it misses its body. It misses you know, the light of the sun. It misses grain and wine and, you know, women and battle and, and ships. And there's no hope. There's no, there's no end game here. There's a, there is a mitigation. And the mitigation is that if you can have an Aristea or if you can have, you can have, there's like two routes that you can go. You can go the, young, beautiful, erotic death route, in which case someone will maybe write a song about you. And then the people who hear your song will, on you know, in, in honor of your name, sacrifice to your, to your shade or sacrifice to sort of Persephone, who will then give you little bits and pieces of food and, and drink. Or, you know, choice B is have a bunch of kids and they will, um, this is kind of the more normal choice, and they will, you know, establish you as their, you know, one of their lares, one of their their ancestral gods, and they'll, in honor of you, sacrifice to you and give you give you grain and wine and and the blood of lambs, and so those are kind of your two. It's it's like planning ahead to have care packages sent to you in the afterlife, and <laughs> and those and those are your two possibilities. But it's really not that great. It's not good enough. And by the time of you know by by Plato's time, certainly, there was a whole other kind of collection of ideas that had started popping up in a very weird way, which were not original to this Homeric and pre-Homeric world. And those were the ideas about metempsychosis, about reincarnation, maybe about the idea of a kind of like spiral ascent where you 
you learn things and your soul gets, you know, choose, you know, chooses a new companion, you know, a new body and then drinks from the river of Lethean and forgets everything, forgets that it chose, but goes on to another lifetime of being taught. And then eventually you maybe dwell with the gods. It's, it's a, it's a promise of theosis, but that's quite new. That's not actually what, what the Homeric heroes believed or what Homer believed. What was Plato's idea of the good? <laughs> Plato's idea of the good was, uh, well, okay, this is assuming that, like, this is controversial, <laughs> surprisingly. Um, I am basically a non-Straussian Platonist in the sense that I think that those who believe that Plato didn't actually believe in the good are, it's coping. It's from what I, Plato certainly believed in the good. His idea of the good was, essentially that which is desired and that which is desired properly. So the thing that you really actually want, the thing that you kind of, if you can scrape away all of your false assumptions and all of your sort of self-deceptions and all your stupidity, the good is what you really want. And it has to do with justice. It has to do with unity. It has to do with God in some way. Um, and But it's it's the thing that you desire. And that's kind of what his idea of metempsychosis held out the possibility unification with that good is what his idea of reincarnation held out as a possibility. You write, uh, I think I'm quoting here, to put it more respectfully, you write, it is the Jews' hope, not the pagans' hopelessness that we're heir to. Now, how so? Well, I mean, this is just, I, I'd kind of been um, going through all of the ideas that that Homer and, and his his cohort had about death and all the kind of like fairly bleak expectations of nothing in particular happening ever again after you died you would just get more and more forgotten so you know i was saying so why why do we care about this like why do we care about what homer says about hades when odysseus goes to like the, the mouth of hades and calls up uh teresius's spirit out of it why do we care about that because that's just it's like you know, it's like a different fandom kind of, it's like, and we're, and we're in the real, we're in the real world, which is the world, the, the real spiritual world, which is the world that's described by the old Testament, as opposed to this imaginary spiritual world that's described by the Greek myths. And of course that's true, sort of, except it's not quite true, I think. And Why? <laughs> but, well, I mean, the, the way into this is that when Jesus, you know, sort of explains what he's going to do and then later when it's described what he has done you know he he says upon this rock i will build my church and the gates of and the word is i do hades will not prevail against it he doesn't say the gates of you know hell because that's a germanic word he he doesn't say sheol because it's written in greek he says the gates of hades will not prevail against my church and it's very clear that you know how this was understood you know when we when we say in in the creed that jesus descended to the dead he, he descended to hades and what he did was he broke down the gates of hades that were holding in the souls of the the dead it you know their defensive gates it's the kingdom of death the kingdom of the the lord of the dead and the lord of the dead had these gates set up against the incursions of the the outside world and jesus like like Orpheus, descended to the world of the dead and got in. And unlike Orpheus, he got his bride out. <laughs> mm. 
And that's, it's, it's just much, much too parallel. Um, and it was understood to be parallel in, you know, by the church fathers. This is, you know, obviously the Greek myths are myths. I'm not saying that they're not, but if you start looking at the Greek as well as the Hebrew background that the people who, you know, read the new Testament letters and documents to each other for the first time would have had, this is a single world. This is not two different worlds like pagan and Christian or pagan and Jewish. It's just, this is the Mediterranean world. Yes. And there's something going on that everyone is trying to describe. Yeah. Uh, A couple more questions. I think we've got time. I've I've so much I could ask you, but uh, to what extent was the Lord Jesus part of that Greek Hellenized world? That was my next question. I mean, it's a really difficult question. Uh, He he seems to have spoke Greek. He... Gamaliel, who was the rabbi who um, Paul studied under Gamaliel's son, I think his name was Shimeon ben Gamaliel, said that Greek was the only language that you could adequately translate the Torah into. This was a very Hellenized Greek world. It was, you know, these were Jews who were walking around speaking, speaking a form of Greek half the time. They, you know, it's very, it's very clear. You know, Paul quotes Greek poets extensively. In, in his letters, he, you know, including applying um, a verse that's meant to be about Zeus to the God of Israel. Like this is, it's a very, it's very clearly there is, there's a single world here that is a single spiritual world and everyone's trying to describe it. And luckily the Jews have, you know, inspired prophets, whereas the pagans have mantics, they have bards who are kind of inspired in some way and they have memory and they have you know legend and they you know obviously there's the the spirit the the story of the flood that you get in in greek myth pyrrha and deucalion are the deucalion is the noah of of the greek myths um and then of course you get the the stories about the mighty men of old the men of the men of renown who are born when the you know the, the elohim the sons of god sleep with the beautiful daughters of men and you obviously get that. And, you know, Goliath of Gath was descended from those guys. And, you know, so was Hercules. So what yes. are you going to do? It's like, this is, it's just, it's, it's one vision of the world, which is very different from ours, but it's not that different from each other. I was reading um, Euripides Alcestis the other mm-hmm. day, and you got the idea of a, even of substitutionary atonement there. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he, 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 she, the, the wife dies in the place of her husband, but she doesn't uh-huh. die. She is actually, in effect, there's a kind uh-huh. of theme of death and resurrection. So you've got uh-huh. substitutionary atonement and death, and a sort of a sort of death and a sort of resurrection. That can't be accidental, I would have thought. Final question, Susanna: In what sense did the Lord Jesus then fulfil the classical world sense of Aristia? Well, okay, so this is the Aristia is the 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 great death the great, uh, you know, courageous and glorious death on the battlefield. That is kind of like, it's what Athena tells um, Achilles he's he should be going for. It's what you, if it's what everyone wants to go for. It's kind of the alternative to immortality through children is immortality through a great death. And the one thing that a God who has not become a man can't do is have an Aristea. And in, at least in, you know, very soon after, the um you know the crucifixion of our lord and his resurrection it his crucifixion is, pr- is portrayed 
very quickly as a joust, as a kind of like battle with Satan. And he does this. He has an Aristea. And unlike, you know, with Achilles, that's not the end of the story. Like he d- he does the thing that the all the Aristeas are looking towards. And he and it's because he's resurrected that you get that the sense of like, all right, what was this all getting at? This was all getting at like this this hope that we sort of had in a great and glorious death um on the battlefield by a, a brave warrior. All that hope was a kind of misinterpreted pre-memory of this great and glorious death on the battlefield that our Lord, who's who is a king, who's mankind's young king, as as he's called in various, um, I think that was in Pierce Plowman, he he dies bravely for for the sake of his bride. And that's not the end of the story. For the first time, that's not the end of the story. There's one more question. Sure. Um, I, I can't resist. Let's tie it all up. I'm going to left field question. Is Jesus our great Dionysus? Is, Christ, <laughs> is, is, is Christianity the supreme Dionysian, Dionysian. Experience, <laughs> Dionysian experience? Well, we do drink wine. <laughs> yes, I'm reminded of, of yeah. Acts where they were all accused yeah. of being drunk before yeah. lunchtime. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there is a kind of, um, I, I'm not sure that I would necessarily call the apostles manids. Um, for various reasons, but there is, I you know, I think you can very easily make. Obviously, Christ and Apollo are very frequently par- paired uh, in in various kinds of like mythological, you know, readings of the of the Gospels. And I, I should clarify, I'm an Orthodox Christian. I'm not saying that this is myth the way that the Greek myths are myth. No, I'm much. I'm much. Yeah, I. I. I think this is a true myth. This is this. Jesus actually did die and was actually resurrected. I think I'm much more inclined to say that I think that the Greek gods probably existed, not and we definitely shouldn't ever have been worshiping them, and they mm, should not mm. have been accepting our worship. So I, I I tend to be extra mythologizing rather than demythologizing, as it were. Yes. Well, yeah, basically, a bit like C.S. Lewis. What did C.S. Yeah. Lewis say that? Um, Christianity was the true myth, yeah. and that all the all these other myths pointed towards, yeah. pointed towards the truth, the supreme yeah. truth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I think well, so there too. we are. A fascinating half-hour discussion. My goodness me, Susanna Black Roberts, <laughs> and the article is uh, you can find it in Mere Orthodoxy. Does it, it has a ma- the mask of Agamemnon on it? Does it? It does. It does. Or it's a it's a mask that was found when Schliemann um, found Troy. Which mm. was super bummed, bummed Nietzsche out because it made everything a little bit too real. Mm. Um, but so when Schliemann found a, a city at the site of Troy, which was in fact Troy, although he ended up digging down to like earlier, like a city that there there had been a city there, and then there had been like you know they'd rebuilt on top of it several times, and so the bottom level city that he got to was about three hundred years before the Trojan War, mm. and that's where he found this mask, which. He called the mask of Agamemnon and then all of the boring, but actually more correct later and less flashy archaeologists were like, actually, actually, it was 300 years before Agamemnon. So sorry. There but is it, doom, is, it is doom on the house of Atreus. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. indeed. <laughs> but it is, it's a Mycenaean. It, it is an, if you want to look um, at, a mask a face from that from that culture from you know from that culture maybe even when it was a little bit closer to its sort of step nomad days and really you know pushing back into kind of like the pre even pre 
Trojan era. You take a look at that. It's it's a very interesting mask. Yes, it's a very brutal and very dark uh, culture that you encounter when you when you read mm-hmm. the, particularly the Greek tragedies. Although I love them, but I'm so grateful for Jesus. I really. Yeah. Am. <laughs> Susanna Black Roberts, uh, senior editor of Plough, and the article is called "The Birth of Comedy," um, and you can find it in Mere Orthodoxy. Thank you so much, Susanna, for your time. Bless you, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. And um, the man who runs it is actually a cl- uh, classics major, <laughs> I think. Yeah, David. Amazing. So he'll love this. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Susanna. Thank you so much. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.